Hi, welcome to Canna Confidential. I'm your host, Jewel Peter, and on this podcast, we discuss the state of the cannabis industry, as well as any insights we feel might be valuable to our listeners. So without further ado, we'll get to the content. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Canna Confidential. Today, we're going to follow the same format that we usually do, which is discussing Canadian cannabis news first, then moving on to the U.S., and of course, addressing any global news that we feel would be beneficial to our listeners. So kicking us off today with our first article, we have Cheryl. Hi. Uh, I'm going to talk today about Sundial. Um, They're Canadian cannabis producer, and they were ordered to recall 30,000 cannabis pre-roll units in three different provinces. So they had to recall in British Columbia, Alberta, and Manitoba, and the reason was for incorrect labeling. The recalled products identified as top leaf strawberry cream. Dried cannabis pre-rolls were sold from March 13th to March 24th, and there were over 30,000 units sold, according to Health Canada. The notice says the products were sold through the Liquor and Gaming Cannabis Authority of Manitoba, Alberta Gaming and Liquor and Cannabis for um, Alberta, and BC through the Liquor Distribution Branch. The amount of THC indicated in the label is lower than the actual THC in the product, according to the notice. So the product was labeled 1.09 milligrams of THC where it actually contained 10.9. So it was just the decimal place was moved to the wrong place. The label erroneously lists the THC content as 1.09 when it should have been labeled 10.9. Neither Sundial nor Health Canada have received any complaints about the recalled lot. And I find that difficult to believe that somebody would think they were smoking a joint that was 1.09 milligrams when it was actually 10.9. The notice warns consumers that recalling companies may not be able to provide information due to the pandemic that's surrounding us right now. They advise consumers not to use the recalled products, but I find that hard to believe too. I would imagine that most customers knowing that they had been bonused with an extra nine milligrams aren't going to not use the product they're not going to send it back in they're just going to use it it's interesting to note though uh, that health canada didn't shut them down or create too much of a ruckus over this that they must have just given them a warning which i find kind of surprising well i think there might be two reasons for that the first being that they probably have their hands full with other things at the moment and the second being that it is very obviously just a misplace of decimal, yeah. Uh, which you know that's just the kind of thing that that happens. That's exactly why you want to have recall SOPs so that you know what to do in this situation because little things like this are just going to occur no matter what business you're in. Yes. So now we'll go to an article from BNN Bloomberg, and that's that the legal cannabis sales total nearly $150 million for February, according to StatsCan. And that says that the Canadian cannabis market is on track to hit $1.9 billion in sales, according to February retail figures. Canadians spent nearly $150 million on that cannabis in February, which is down slightly from the previous month, again, according to Statistics Canada. 
They said that $149.9 million worth of legal pot was brought was bought in February, down 2.7% from January. On a daily basis, Canadians bought $5.16 million worth of cannabis in February, up from the $4.97 million bought per day in January, and resulting in an annualized revenue rate of $1.9 billion. Only three provinces reported monthly sales advanced in February, with Saskatchewan leading declines with nearly 15% of a fall in activity, according to the Statistics Canada data. So it's nice to see that the legal market is starting to get on track, and I think that's really the most important thing to take away from this. And you can you can put COVID-19 into the situation or not, but the legal cannabis market is still going to continue on track as it has been. And there might be a little bit of a hiccup because of COVID, but other than that, we are just seeing what we were going to be seeing anyway. I agree completely. I think we discussed last week that that cannabis is a de-stressor for a lot of people. And with the the amount of stress that this COVID pandemic is causing, I'm not surprised to see the numbers go up, but they were going to go up anyway. And it's just going to continue to do that. And that's an interesting point you bring about the stress, because I was saying to someone earlier today that I almost think that the stress of the situation is more harmful for a lot of people than the actual impact of the coronavirus. Because a lot of people personally have not gotten the coronavirus, have not been uh, infected, as it were. Or affected by a family member. But they are feeling the stress of potentially having that happen for themselves or especially someone they care about. And, and just being locked in your house. And I mean, it's just stressful all the way around and, and not being able to go to your job or, you know, letting your kids play in the park. Like there's just so many stressors involved here. Yeah. Not just the, I mean, there is of course the stress of what would happen if someone contracted Correct. the illness yes. or if that happened to someone that you cared about, but there's also the stress of the entire situation as it unfolds. And I think that's what a lot of people are finding really challenging. Mm-hmm. So next we'll go to an article from MJ Biz Daily, and that's regarding Farmgate in Ontario. So Farmgate is expected to launch post-pandemic, and Ontario's cannabis wholesalers are working with some producers to launch on-site stores at their facilities, and this is to go into effect after the pandemic eases, and guidelines are in the works to apply to craft marijuana businesses. That was just some of the valuable information from a recent Ask Me Anything or an AMA on Reddit with Ontario Cannabis Store Chief Commercial Officer Sherry Mara. And there's several points of uh, what this farm gate is going to look like. So we'll go through the various points now. So they're trying to organize anyone that's a grower to be able to sell cannabis from your facility. So as a grower, I can designate a certain portion of my building to open up as a store to have people come there and purchase cannabis directly from me as a grower. They're trying to organize what this is going to look like, and it's an entirely different 
uh, situation for each grow, I would think. I don't know how they're going to organize this to be a real farm gate if you are an outdoor grower at a farm. I don't know how that what that's going to look like, people coming down your driveway to buy cannabis. It, it's, it's kind of surprising to me. I don't know how they're going to get it all aligned properly, but it's an interesting scenario to watch. I think it's going to require people to have some sort of business type setup at their place of growing, whether that also happens to be their residence or not. So if you have a nursery in your community that sells flowers or tomato plants or something of the sort, then I think this would probably look sort of similar to that in that they have a place where you go to the cash register and you would run your credit card or you would pay cash and you'd get a receipt and, and it would all feel like a sort of like an outdoor business, really. Almost like a farmer's market. I know there have been a handful of producers that have submitted the application and I think we're going to see the large producers come out of the gate first while they're organizing for the micros to, to get on board with it. I don't know which is the right way to do it. I would think that it would be easier to have the micros open first, but we'll see what happens. Well, there's several points that were discussed in the AMA, and so just a few of those were the framework that is going to be created for craft cannabis, the opportunity to sell seeds and clones, not just flour, uh, old inventory, which is something that the OCS is, is getting more familiar with that people don't necessarily want flour that's older than, let's say, three months, uh, lower retail prices, and then obviously post-COVID, what farm gate sales are going to look like, and then no undercutting stores. So those are the major points that they have sort of addressed. And just to briefly go over them, the framework is going to go beyond just marketing and actually reflect into the roots of craft cannabis growing in the legacy market. Uh, once the framework is finalized, it will allow everyone to be clear with any licensed producer, large or small, about what it means if you want to bring a craft branded product forward. And that's a quote directly from Sherry Mara of the Ontario Cannabis Store. And then to discuss the opportunities for seed and clone producers, I think that's really interesting because there are a lot of people who want to be able to buy cannabis plants the same way that they buy seeds for tomato plants or buy a small tomato plant. And to see them address that issue, that there is a consumer base for that, not just for the already prepackaged product, that will be very interesting as well. I think there's a lot of people that... Um, you know, would like to grow their four plants, except for those of you in Manitoba or Quebec. I think there's a lot of people that would like to grow their four plants on the in the backyard or on the deck, but they don't know where to get the seeds from. They don't know. They just don't have any idea. Um, there are people out there, you know, that do have their tomato plants on the patio or whatever. But um, as far as buying cannabis seeds or buying clones to to start off, it, it's kind of like, where do you start? So I think it's good that they're addressing this and going to open it up so that people are allowed to, you know, purchase their four plants, uh, except if you're in Manitoba or Quebec, um, and be able to have access to cannabis that you have grown yourself. 
And they're working on a solution for clones, hopefully in time for next growing season. But anybody who has had any experience with trying to get clones in the legal market knows that a major hurdle to overcome is how to ship them properly so that when they arrive, they are in good condition. They haven't had any issues due to travel. So figuring that out is going to be the first step in getting clones to the commercial market. I would think, addressing that, that there would be, there would have to be like going to a nursery where you buy your petunias or your tomato plant or or, or perhaps even the farmer's markets. I don't see being able, a, a grower being able to ship four plants to you know, some remote location uh, and and have them arrive ready to go in the ground. I, I just don't know what that would look like. And I, I don't think anyone knows as of yet, which is probably why they're still exploring options. They, they, they will come to a solution for it. That's It, it won't be a long-term barrier, but uh, it will be a challenge to to get that organized. And now we'll discuss the old inventory that Sherry Mara mentioned and that they are working to change their policy, at least at the OCS, to ensure that all products that ship to them are packaged within the last three months. And it may take some time to be visible to customers as they sell through inventory. But just as most plants... Cannabis is more potent when it's fresh. So the more it, the longer it's been sitting, the less, uh, I guess just the less experience or it will lessen the experience for the end user. And only for probably a cannabis connoisseur who's used to a certain freshness of cannabis, but all in all, people are wanting to buy the highest quality product possible in most cases. And having fresh cannabis is definitely a priority uh, for all growers, not just the OCS. I'm really happy to see this because there has been talk about some of the large LPs holding on to product, backlogging it, and creating um, a, a false sense of not enough product on the market. And to have this product backdated indicates partially why um, the L- the large producers are having an issue where craft producers are wanting to get it out on the market as quickly as possible and can't sit on it. So to have it dated within three months, I think is a great thing. And then they're also going to address the lower retail prices. So there's been a lot of conversation about the overpriced nature of cannabis, especially at provincial stores. The OCS has lowered prices on more than 240 products since January, and the price per gram is 25% lower on average and margins are shrinking. Now, as a side note, with Farmgate, uh, there will still be taxes on it, but ideally it would be directly from the producer to the consumer. So cutting out all that middle expense uh, and just having to pay the tax on it is definitely going to lower the price significantly. And they're working, I believe that they're working to lower the retail prices at the provincial stores because they know once Farmgate is available, if people have access to it, they're not going to go to the provincial stores. Why would they? If you've got a farmer's market type of person down the road from you that, or, or you know, in your town that is uh, able to 
produce and sell directly, why would you want to buy it through a store um, online, OCS, or you know, one of the one of the provincial marketers? And the last point to address is the no undercutting stores part of this conversation. And so Mara said that the OCS as a wholesaler does not undercut stores. Stores are not our competition, but our partners in growing the size of the legal market. We designed our pricing to eliminate the risk of undercutting stores. All stores buy cannabis from us at a fixed markdown from OCS.ca prices. And that's a direct quote from Sherry Mara. However, I think that this will be an interesting part of the conversation as Farmgate is opened up because when you are buying directly from the producer, there isn't the cost of the middleman. And Ontario Cannabis Store is the middleman, to just be perfectly blunt in this case. So it is going to be very interesting to see if they're going to require independent producers to upcharge or if the Ontario Cannabis Store is going to lower their prices to the point where their profit margin is smaller, it's really going to be interesting to see how this pricing situation is going to be resolved because there is the very obvious fact that when you buy from a store that is not the producer, they have their cut that they get out of it as well. And it's also um, interesting that Mara has said that they don't undercut stores, but Farmgate can undercut the stores. Well, there's no reason that it, it, I wouldn't see it as undercutting. It would just be lower overhead Mm -hmm. because you only have the producer. direct to the the consumer, which is, uh, it cuts out a whole lot of people in the middle there that all want their cut. Now we're going to go to an article about illegal border crossing. And you would think with cannabis being legal in Canada, And in some states in the U.S., people wouldn't feel the need to uh, smuggle cannabis across the border anymore, but apparently they still do. An Ontario nurse has been charged after allegedly trying to smuggle pot across the border at Windsor, Detroit. Apparently the border is only open for essential services and smuggling pot is not considered essential. Although I think some people would argue that it is, but... (laughs) Well, it's medically... Uh, legal in Michigan, so I don't understand why somebody would try to take 70 kilograms across the the border. But a nurse from Ontario who works in the States daily was charged with conspiracy, possession with intent to distribute, and importing 70 kilograms of cannabis, which is about 150 pounds. She's set to see the judge in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan this week. So she crosses the border every day to go to work from her place of residence in Canada. And uh, I guess the, the uh, Border Patrol smelled cannabis and asked her to pull over and they opened up her trunk and found 143 vacuum sealed bags of suspected cannabis. Now, at the time they arrested her, they they're being careful saying that it's suspected cannabis, but it is, um, it's been acknowledged that it is cannabis and that's why she's, gone in fr- she's going in front of the judge. At a time when healthcare professionals are working overtime to keep us safe, it's really shameful that anyone would exploit their status as a nurse to smuggle any kind of drug into the United States. 
To stop the spread of coronavirus, our Canadian border is only open for essential travel and smuggling marijuana is not considered an essential. She's been placed on administrative leave until they see how this comes out. And uh, apparently the hospital that employs her has released a statement saying they're ex extremely disappointed to learn about these allegations. Which is interesting because I'm assuming that with 150 pounds, uh, and they have described that she had the intent to distribute. Now, perhaps she needed that medically for herself, but if that were the case, <laughs> then she would have needed to have her prescription stating that she needed 150 pounds for that day Well, yeah. Uh, while she was at work. So I think when you put all the pieces together, the fact that you're not supposed to be... Uh, using cannabis while you're at work, it's very clear that at no point are you supposed to cross any international borders with cannabis. And also the fact that it was such a high quantity does lead one to believe that she did have an ulterior motive, not just her own personal use. And she's facing 20 years in prison if she's convicted in a U.S. federal prison. It, it, I find it quite shocking that and, and maybe it was price-driven, because I do know that prices in Canada are lower than they are in, in the newer states that have been, we discussed this last week, that in Pennsylvania, it's going as high as 7000 a pound. So Michigan has not been medically legal for very long, and perhaps she just felt that she was going to make a whole lot more money uh, bringing that into the states than she would have selling it in Canada. Or working as a nurse. That's a heck of a risk. But either way, uh, it is something that's still occurring, and, and hopefully there will be less of it. But again, if there was a legal market federally in the U.S., there really wouldn't be any reason for people to be trying to smuggle things across the border unless it was to get it at a cheaper price. But other than that, there's really, if it was federally legal, there wouldn't be much of a reason to. Mm -hmm. So now we'll move on to an article from USA Today regarding uh, the U.S. marking some pot stores as essential businesses because of the COVID-19 situation. And the marijuana industry embraces change, especially when it is favorable for them. Edible products and pre-rolls are something that are available and vape concentrates as well as loose flour that can be packed into a pipe, uh, which provide more bang for your buck are also available. Stores are effectively closed, but instead customers order online and pick up curbside, a major shift from when each buyer had to be personally verified by a licensed store worker. In California, stores have lar largely switched to an all-delivery model. The country's burgeoning cannabis industry is working swiftly to adapt to customers' need as the coronavirus outbreak debilitates the U.S. economy. Business owners are unable to access federal bailouts because the drug remains illegal nationally, and popular 420 events were canceled, as most of us know, because of stay-at-home orders. So sellers are pushing for new ways to reach customers and persuade lawmakers that legal cannabis has become a crucial industry for many Americans. This is a quote from Julie Armstrong, CEO of Montana-based cannabis analytics firm Aurelius Data. This is cannabis's moment to find its purpose and its voice. It was the opportunity we never saw coming. And that's, that's exactly what it is. I mean, there's lots of moments in history that cannabis could have become legalized 
for one reason or another, given the climate politically or socially at that time. But in this instance, as we've discussed earlier, with stress being the main thing that people are dealing with aside from those who are actually physically impacted by the illness, but for those who are just essentially along for the ride because they haven't personally been impacted or don't know anyone personally who's been impacted, but they're still dealing with the stress of job loss or being furloughed or uh, even their business just closing entirely. Or if you're a small business owner, not knowing when you'll be able to make an income again, all of those things would be major stressors. And that's why I would think a lot of cannabis industry enthusiasts, as well as those who want to see the industry succeed are using this as a catalyst to push through something that should have been legalized a long time ago. I agree completely. And that's a nice segue point to this article that I'm, uh, I've been working on. The coronavirus pandemic boosts marijuana sales while many businesses struggle. So the, the whole article goes on to talk about sales in Colorado, Oregon, California, and Washington state, and in Nevada, in California, sales jumped 56% on Monday compared to the previous four Mondays because of the stressors, but also people are hoarding because they don't know when they're going to be able to get out again. Uh, Some businesses are doing curbside, some businesses are doing delivery, but people are really worried about not being able to get out and get their, whether it's recreation or or medical, I, I don't know, but They're worried about not being able to get it. In Oregon, sales were 75% higher than their normal average on a Monday. And uh, in uh, Nevada, it was 50% up. So this whole pandemic is causing a ruckus in so many markets, but it's having a very uh, positive effect in the cannabis market. Well, and I think that, you know, this is this is just exacerbating the issue that so many people face with stress. Anyway, we all know how bad stress is for the human body and for your immune system. And so I think a lot of people are hitting a breaking point. And I've also seen a few articles where they believe that cannabis might actually increase the body's ability to fight off an infection or an illness similar to COVID-19. So perhaps other people are also thinking that it might be beneficial, even though we don't have the research necessarily to show that yet, although they are working on that. Uh, but you know, if, if people believe that it works for them, then of course they're going to stockpile something that they believe might keep them safe or save them. There are lots of studies being done on cannabis and COVID. And uh, one of the things that I've read just recently, I think a couple of days ago, that it doesn't have any ability to, um, it's not like an antibiotic, so it can't, it can't fight infection. So I don't know if there is, it it remains to be seen if it's going to have a positive impact, but anything that will help people de-stress, I think is a is a positive. And as those articles and studies do come out and are published, we'll be sure to share them with you. Now we're talking about smuggling from the U.S. to India. So in an article from The Week, in the absence of human drug mules because of the stoppage of all international flights as of March 22nd or around there, 
drug smugglers have turned to the postal service. However, the special alert maintained at the foreign postal office and courier terminal, courier terminal at Chennai airport to check smuggling has put a halt to the plans of drug smugglers who tried to bring in a consignment of 1.7 kilograms of cannabis from the United States hidden in a pair of sleeping bags. According to a press release by the Chennai Commissions of Customs, the Postal Intelligence of Air Customs detained a parcel suspected to contain narcotic substances, and they are referring to cannabis uh, when they refer to narcotics, which arrived from the USA at the Foreign Post Office. The consigner had declared the parcel to contain sleeping bags and a hand vacuum. On examination, the parcel was found to contain two red sleeping bags and one carton of hand vacuum cleaners, and upon opening the sleeping bags, two plastic bags containing greenish dried flour were found concealed in each sleeping bag. And so people are are trying to get as creative as possible <laughs> while we're locked down, uh, but it doesn't seem to be working out in their favor. But again, if, if cannabis were just legalized... Uh, or at least decriminalized in a lot of places, then the cost of getting it to somewhere where it's illegal would reduce significantly, which would then not make it worth it yeah. for the people trying to get it into the hands of, in, into a country where it is illegal. And now we're going to talk about an article from Marijuana Business Magazine that says cannabis extractors should be actively involved with growers who provide their raw material. Successful cannabis extraction businesses can improve their situations even more by working closely with the cultivation companies that supply their product. Making sure that growers are offering high-quality flour in a consistent manner is a key part of the process. After all, without good starting materials, we won't have much to work with. We're always working with our partners to create a better product and a better experience, said Eli Bilton, CEO of Addis Trading Company, a vertically integrated marijuana company based in Oregon. To ensure that growers are providing the best material possible, cannabis extraction companies must conduct due diligence. And I include this article because it's very important for people who use uh, cannabis ancillary products like vape pens or tinctures or oils to know where that cannabis is coming from. So it's it's really a, a chain of command with the end consumer being the final person. But if the companies that are doing the extraction are more particular about the cannabis that they're accepting from people and making sure that it didn't test positive for powdery mildew or bud rot or that it was grown in a proper environment or if it was outdoors, was it sprayed with pesticides? All that sort of information needs to be put together by the company doing the extraction so that they know what the product they're working with is. And then they can then pass on that information to the consumer so that they know the product they're getting is what they say it is. Does it have pesticides? And if so, that has to be provided in a disclaimer. Or is it 100% organic and was grown by an artisan grower who's been doing this for 40 years? Either way, by the extraction company knowing the product that they're getting, they can be more clear for the end user who is the person that ultimately should know exactly what it is that they're choosing to ingest. It's, it's important for the, the grower to know that their product is going to a, produ a processor that will be accountable and it's important for the end user to know that their processor and their grower is held accountable. 
I think all around, it's just really important for clarity and transparency in regards to the entire uh, command chain yes. so that everybody involved knows what's happening with the product. Yes. Now we'll move on to our global articles for today. Uh, Cheryl, if you want to get us started. I want to talk about the Danish Medicine Agency. They're gradually resuming on-site cannabis inspections. So because of uh, COVID, the Danish Medicines Agency put most inspections on hold a month ago. Uh, though a few already scheduled inspections were carried out as office-based assessments, and in the interim, uh, they have canceled everything else. They're set to gradually start resuming the on-site inspections and laboratory controls for medical pr cannabis producers, the regulator told Marijuana Business Daily. Due to the gradual reopening of the community, the Danish Medicines Agency is gradually resuming on-site inspections and the laboratory controls. So why does that matter to us? It matters because the, re the growers in North America, because the regulating government authorities all learn from one another, and while this is an unprecedented time in history, just like social distancing, self-isolation, and the whole issue with masks and gloves, we're all taking cues from each other with reference to the best policies in handling this pandemic. So if you're planning on exporting your product to the EU, you'll need squeaky clean GMPs and GPPs, and that involves the certificates that come with compliances with the regulations. But it's also nice to know that some countries are trying to get back to normal. And I think a lot of people want uh, to be able to go back to at least a new normal, even if that means that social distancing is part of what that looks like. But especially when it comes to something like this, that so many European countries consider cannabis, even just CBD-based cannabis, to be a medical product that people need it because it's not used legally, recreationally there yet. So... Of course, they want to get back to business as usual in that sense because it is a medicine for people. It would be as if aspirin was unavailable. Mm -hmm. And now we'll go to our final article regarding Brazil from MJ Biz Daily. Brazil approves the first medical cannabis product under 2019 regulations. Brazil's health authorities authorized the first medical cannabis product registered under rules created in December 2019 marking an important milestone for the industry in Latin America's largest economy. The THC-free CBD product registered to Brazilian pharmaceutical giant Prati Donaduzzi obtained sanitary authorization this week, according to a notice in the country's official gazette. The company declined interview requests from Marijuana Business Daily. The 2019 rules paved the way for bulk import, manufacture if needed, and distribution to pharmacies of medical cannabis products that have not completed clinical trials. The rules do not allow for domestic cultivation, nor do they allow for the import of the, quote, cannabis plant or its parts. The sanitary authorization designation permits the product's manufacture in Brazil. Doctors will be able to prescribe this new product and patients can expect to find it in local pharmacies. The Piranha-based company promises to have the product available in pharmacies before Mother's Day, which falls on the second Sunday of May, to value and recognize all mothers who fight for their children's right to access treatment. That's according to the director president of the company as a news release. 
The company product is an oral solution containing 200 milligrams of CBD per millimeter. The company also claims a version of the product is in the final stages of a phase three clinical trial. The company has been conducting scientific research in the area for more than six years. Brazil's National Sanitary Surveillance Agency needed only 35 days to analyze and approve the application for a sanitary authorization. By rejecting domestic cultivation in 2019, but allowing manufacture, Brazilian health authorities effectively established a promising import market for raw extracts, isolated cannabinoids, or finished products. So that's the part that's most interesting about this article, is that they have legalized medical CBD cannabis for use, but they have not allowed for the cultivation of it, which means that they're going to have to get it from somewhere. And in order to obtain it from a legal source, they're going to have to get it from one of the countries that legally produces cannabis, which puts uh, Canada, obviously, right at the very forefront, as well as Uruguay, and potentially Israel, because I know they're working very diligently to try and get uh, their legal market up and running. And while there are markets in the U.S. that could potentially supply Brazil, I would imagine that the lack of federal legalization is going to prevent the U.S. from making a play for a contract like this at this time. That's very interesting information to know that they are only going to be able to import. And to import, they're not coming in from Mexico. They're not coming in. I know Mexico's trying to get legal, but it could take a decade. Um, It's not coming in from the States. They're looking at Uruguay and Canada. For now. They could decide to start cultivating depending Mm -hmm. on the market. A lot of things could change. But as of right now, there is a market for legal cannabis in Brazil that legally cannot be cultivated in Brazil. Thanks so much for joining us today for this episode of Canna Confidential. As always, we love your feedback. So if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us. We would be happy to discuss any aspect of microcultivation with you or the cannabis industry in general. So this is us signing off for this week. Have a great week and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Have you met Mary Jane? Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions about today's topics or the cannabis industry in general, then please send an email to admin at kinhana.com. That's K-I-N-H-A-N-A.com.